Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today I'm speaking with Linus Schumacher. Hi, Linus. Hello. So, Linus, you wrote a couple of interesting papers recently. One of them is multidisciplinary approaches to understanding collective cell migration in developmental biology, uh, published in Open Biology, I think, last year. And the other one is Semblance of Heterogeneity in Collective Cell Migration, published this year in Cell Systems. And I want to talk to you about uh, multidisciplinary approaches and about cell migrations. That sounds like it's a lot of fun. Uh, before that, uh, tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, so my background has been quite interdisciplinary. When I finished high school, I was torn between going to university to study physics and going to study biology. And one option that enabled me to sort of delay that decision was to study a course called Natural Sciences, in which I mostly studied physics, but could take a lot of um, other subjects, such as physiology or material science and neurobiology. And I continued that for my undergraduate, specializing in sort of a core physics education, but always take the opportunity to work on biological problems and pretty much continued that throughout my PhD as well, which was again an interdisciplinary training program. Where did you do your PhD? So my PhD was done at the University of Oxford and working mostly in the Center for Mathematical Biology, which is a group of mostly mathematicians, but a lot of um, sort of computer scientists and physicists as well, uh, doing theoretical work in in application to biology. Right. So this problem of cell migration. Uh, was it the first problem to which you tried to apply this multidisciplinary approach? Uh, there were a couple of other problems along the line. Uh, my, I was quite fortunate to have the opportunity to do some short research projects before settling on my PhD. It was sort of you know, one of these doctoral training centers they have in the UK, which are probably inspired a little bit by the US PhD in which you have rotation projects. So I first worked on some problems in auditory neuroscience and in stochastic pattern formation, which sort of introduced me to the world of mathematical biology, and I really enjoyed the group and the environment there, but at the same time wanted to work in projects that had a close collaboration with experimental biologists. And for that reason, I chose the cell migration problem um, with applications to developmental biology, because that's just a fascinating um, area of biology that's uh, ripe with problems where we can make quantitative contributions. And that's one of the things I try to outline in this um, sort of perspective article in Open Biology last year. Mm -hmm. And so when you first came across cell migration, was it already a problem to which people were trying to apply multidisciplinary, like mathematical and physical approaches, or was it was it your idea? No, I can't claim that uh, it was my idea. You know, the, um, the the history of computational and mathematical biology is, is is quite rich, and the problem of cell migration has not uh, escaped that. Of course, I really joined a collaboration that was already ongoing with. Um, a great collaborator, Paul Kalisa from the Stowers Institute of Medical Research in Kansas City, who did a PhD in mathematical biology himself and then transitioned to doing um, his own experiments to test the predictions of his, of, of his mathematics, but then being left with sort of you know, too much stuff to do, um, which is why he kept collaborating with our group for the theoretical contributions. And other people had worked on sort of similar models of um, cell migration uh, in a variety of forms. And it was initially more of a more of a challenge of choosing the right the right tools for the job um, for the problem we wanted to for the problems we wanted to study, which was um, how you know collective cell migration um, enables groups of cells in um, the developing embryo to cover large distances and find their targets so that the growth can occur normally. Right. So maybe this is a good opportunity to introduce the problem itself, maybe a bit more formally. You mentioned already like uh, embryo development uh, and there are other applications, but in general, like what do we understand by collective cell migration? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And um, it's worth clarifying. What I worked on mostly were groups of around hundreds of cells that um, uh, moved together um, as a group. And the, 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 the number of hundreds of cells is important because it uh, means that it might be very hard to predict from just having an idea of what an individual cell does, what the whole group does. You know, um, that's why the computation uh, is useful and simulation is a good tool to uh, give those predictions from the hypotheses. And the term collective uh, is again important because you really need um, there to be some sort of emergent behavior. So um, when you put um, all the cells together, and they uh, migrate as a group. What you really mean is that the behavior is somewhat different from just uh, each of the cells uh, moving next to each other, but without interaction. So it's the study of how the interaction between um, many cells um, gives rise to interesting things that would be hard to predict without the use of mathematics and simulation. So you draw the boundary there that uh, you can have just many cells moving maybe in the same direction and uh, the same picture, but only now they're moving because they're interacting, right? It, you, you make the distinction, but like observationally, it may look the same or not? Observationally, it, it may well look the same. And I think that's um, why you need models to implement your hypotheses and then challenge these models to come up with uh, predictions to test your hypotheses. So maybe to give you one more concrete example, one of the problems we studied is that of neural crest migration in um, in the embryo. And without going too much detail into the biological background, these are sort of multipotent cells that migrate through various places in the embryo to various uh, distal locations. And they need to sort of get to the right places for the growth of the embryo to um, continue without without further difficulties or without developmental defects. And one of the things we studied is whether maybe different cells within this group of a few hundred uh, cells, a particular subset of these neural crest cells, whether some of these cells adopt different um, roles or different behavior in their migration. So rather than every uh, cell just moving by itself and happen to be in a group of a few hundred other cells, we investigated the hypothesis, what if sort of some cells um, find the way and read out the guiding signals in the uh, tissue environment, where the, whereas other cells sort of just go with the flow and go with the group. And uh, that, you know, from, uh, from our studies seems to be the case, or at least seems to be a useful description of what is going on, and led to a couple of predictions we could then feed back to our experimental collaborators to test uh, to test uh, in vivo because you know after all at the end of the day the experiment uh, will have um, the last say of what is really going on mm -hmm. and how would you how would you test this how do you design the experiment to test this so that's a good question it, it really depends on um, the the predictions you can draw from the model but also the things that are possible to do experimentally so, for example, if you have your simulation of what you think is sort of a functioning migration, you might say, okay, what if I now transplant some of these cells into a different location, a different position within the group? How would that affect uh, what we're going to see? Or how is it going to change if I take out uh, a certain subset of the cells by sort of removing them or killing them? And you know, one of these things is uh, much easier to do experimentally. Transplantation, uh, at least in the chick embryo, is um, sort of an established or more established uh, embryology technique, whereas taking out individual cells you could, for example, do with a, a laser, but that has um, a bunch of caveats uh, coming with it because you create debris and might cause signals to spill into the environment that other cells could read it. And that's not something you have an hypothesis about in the model, which is why uh, well, that would be a test that, that's more difficult. But, um, you know, in, at the end of the day, you want to create a perturbation in your simulation and try to match that experimentally, either surgically or chemically or, um, or even just through um, observation with um, you know, genetic markers or analysis of 
the distribution of uh, of cells or their morphology and see if you can um, match what your simulations are suggesting. And that requires a constant back and forth between the experimentalists and the um, computational biologists, which is one of the really enjoyable parts of working interdisciplinary, I think. Yeah, interesting. I already see a sign of a multidisciplinary approach because what we're talking about very much sounds like a physicist's approach to formulate a model and then think about an experiment that would falsify or or confirm that model, that theory. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. Uh, I guess with my background being in physics, what what I usually strive towards is a minimal description um, implementing uh, the hypothesis that uh, we have as a team of researchers and to try to reproduce the biological observation in question. Yeah, and a particular hypothesis that you scrutinize in your recent paper is the heterogeneity, right? So can you explain what that hypothesis assumes? Yeah, so maybe let me go um, go back a bit to say where that uh, motivation came from, if um, if you'll indulge me. So in uh, most of my PhD work, we looked at this neural crest migration and looked at a form of heterogeneity um, with different cells adopting different navigational states or different migratory states. And we think that, as I said, that was a useful description. And uh, you know, well, there was uh, quite a bit of evidence in, in multiple uh, papers to, to support that. Now, when you talk to other researchers, there's always... A or I, I perceive there to be this dichotomy between um, some researchers who wanted to characterize everything there was to characterize about the system on the one hand, and uh, sort of other researchers championing parsimony to a uh, sometimes absurd degree on 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 the other hand. You know, and um, the extremes would be that if I measure every transcript in every cell, I could say every cell looks different and looks unique, um, whereas I could on the other extreme, ignore all the detail I see under the microscope and say, no, every cell must be identical, uh, which, you know, at, at, at the embryo level, at least, we know is, is, uh, is not true or is not necessarily a useful description. So motivated by my experience in the PhD, I then sort of uh, thought, how can we, you know, think about um, measuring heterogeneity in cell migration? Uh, and there are many different ways that one might measure this. But essentially wanting to say that uh, if we if we use models to compare what we'd expect to see under a given hypothesis, we can be uh, much more uh, confident about whether some of the heterogeneity we uh, measure is something biologically relevant or is simply uh, sort of an artifact due to our limited measuring capability. So maybe to be a bit more concrete, you know, what we looked at is um, originally whether some cells m move uh, ahead of others and sort of lead the way. And we, we uh, established uh, that in, at least in uh, some of the neurocrest cells in the chick embryo um, to be a useful description. But a more general way of how you might measure this is by uh, tracking cells and then measuring which cells move before others. And you can do that using a technique called um, delayed correlation analysis. So if you look at how the movement of two cells correlates, if one cell always moves ahead of another, you would have the highest correlation between these two cells with a certain delay. And by looking at how large this delay is and whether it's positive or negative, you can establish how much heterogeneity of um, movement there is, so how much leader-follower heterogeneity, if you will, there is. And that's really a technique that came from the analysis of collective movement of animals. So people have studied these in migratory birds, where, of course, you can have um, long observation times by essentially tracking birds in GPS, and you can also have a repeatability of the experiment while maintaining the identity of the birds. So if you collect the birds and uh, keep their tags, you can do the experiment many times and measure every time which ones move first or not. But if you study cells, um, you know, while this, this, uh, this measurement technique might be an attractive 
statistical tool you can apply to your to your cell tracking data, you're really much more limited because you don't have very long observation times, especially if you culture the cells or if you look at them in the in the growing embryo, you there will be a limited amount of time that you can observe these cells. Um, and secondly, you can't really repeat this experiment very well, um, maintaining the identity of the cells, because once an experiment in cell culture or in vivo and embryo, uh, once an observational period is finished, it's often the case that you know the the the, the cells are done for. If you if you know what I mean, but that cannot be the definition of heterogeneity because i think in your paper right you say that the collective movement is possible without the heterogeneity so you you cannot define heterogeneity as just this uh leader follower pattern right you, you mean something else by that right so that that is just one example of heterogeneity and you're right i i pointed out in um, the open biology perspective that you know we have many models of collective movement that are working perfectly well without any heterogeneity, right? So I can, you know, and people have done this, made simple models of flocking particles that sort of loosely resemble flocks of birds that just have every every um, agent, every simulated bird or every simulated cell be identical and you get a group movement that is collective uh, in the sense we, we, we described earlier. Now, in nature, that may be different and therefore, it's important to to try to first of all measure heterogeneity, but then also compare this to uh, a suitable null model. And what we did essentially in the cell systems um, article is to say, here's an example of uh, heterogeneity that you can measure. Uh, this and, and, and in our case, this was this uh, leader follow heterogeneity in the form of delay correlation analysis, and when I measure the same property in my uh, simulated migration of identical cells, so a group of cells without any heterogeneity, I still get a non-zero measurement. And to a statistician, that might be obvious because there'll be some correlation just due to chance in small sample sizes. But I thought it was really a point worth communicating to biologists because I, you know, I, I saw the appeal of these these statistical measurements and saw them being used in the literature on real cells. But thought, you know, uh, there's a cautionary tale to be to be told here. Okay, so when you sort of refute this heterogeneity, you don't you're not saying that there is no heterogeneity, and you're referring to like heterogeneity in the cells themselves, not in their roles, right? But you're saying that that heterogeneity is not a causal factor or maybe not the most important factor in collective movement. Is, is that correct? That, that's partly correct. So you're right in pointing out that I'm not, um, I'm not trying to say there is, no, there is no heterogeneity. I'm saying that we, if we measure it and want to claim that there's heterogeneity, we have to be more careful because we really have to compare it to the models that represent our underlying hypotheses, right? So you might have some cells and you measure something about their migration and then you might do a statistical analysis to say how the migration of some of the cells is different to that of other cells. And now the answer to whether that is, is, is to be expected or not, these differences really depends on your hypothesis of what the behavior of each cell is, so your model, if you will, right? So I can write down an equation of how I think that each cell behaves. And then if that is identical for every cell and still gives me the same expected or roughly the same expected difference in statistical properties of migration, then the measurement you uh, we have done is not sufficient to, um, to, to infer heterogeneity of the kind described in this population. But but on the other hand, I'm also not making a general statement about whether heterogeneity is um, is important or 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 not in general in collective migration. We've seen examples where it is important, such as my my work uh, with experimental collaborators in the neural crest migration, and I've shown you a sort of computational case study where uh, you know it it clearly isn't important, and we might get a false measurement. But whether it is or isn't really depends on the the, the biological application. Mm -hmm. And so one form of heterogeneity that I 
have in mind is the uh, differences in gene expression in in different cells, right? Um, so has there been any attempts to measure it, or is it just hard to simultaneously measure gene expression and like the movement patterns? Yeah, so that's a great example. Um, the 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 work I sort of illustrated uh, just now is, of course, based on cell tracking data, but a very common and uh, attractive form of heterogeneity to to look at is is of course the uh, differences in in gene expression, and that's something you might want to correlate with um, the differences in migratory behavior. And we've done this to some extent with our experimental collaborators in the neural crest, where we've uh, isolated cells um, first uh, first in bulk and then and later individually to look at single cell gene expression of uh, different positions within the group and from that sort of um, identified you know uh, differences in uh, heterogeneity that are consistent across different time points and unique to say a certain um, a certain set of cells that are in the case of the neocrest, located at the front, at the leading edge, which, by the way, is also something that our simulations were useful in guiding the um, guiding the ex- experiments towards to to really focus on where where and at what level of uh, scale do you want to characterize that unity. And from these um, from these profiles of uh, a dozen or so uh, genes that were consistently different in this group of cells that seem to be migrating differently. Uh, you can then, you know, tr- either go and try to isolate um, markers that sort of maybe label this uh, difference in cell state, or you can try to manipulate the um, cell state and perturb it by, you know, like we did, identify transcription factors that um, sit upstream of this profile of uh, this of gene expression at the leading edge of the cells. And when you then um, overexpress or knock down uh, these uh, transcription factors, you can again compare the outcome of the model to what you see um, uh, what you see experimentally. Um, so in, in in our case, this involves overexpressing uh, this genetic profile that is characteristic of these cells in a leader state in the neural crest, which uh, then led to a, um, a, a a failure of migration, but a, a failure characteristic in that cells still migrated at as far as they would in the unperturbed um, group of cells in the embryo, but at a much lower density. And that's exactly what we saw in our simulation when we mimic this perturbation by increasing the proportion of, of cells in a leader state partway through the simulation like you would in the experimental perturbation. Wow, that's that's amazing, the, the fact that you can do something like that. Let's go to your model. How does it work? If someone wanted to uh, make a similar model, what would they have to do? So the first thing you really have to do is either know the biology or talk a lot to the people who do know the biology, because that'll, that'll inform you what details are um, important to include in your model. In my case, I've mostly worked with what you call agent-based models or individual-based models. And that just means that you represent each cell as its own object in a simulation. And the reason why we do this is because we only look at a few dozens or hundreds of cells. So the, the I guess, the stochasticity in the individual behavior can still be uh, important. And secondly, because the heterogeneities that we looked at were also on the scale of, you know, maybe a few or tens of cells being different. If you had much higher numbers of cells, you might consider different mathematical models, such as, um, such as continuous, um, partial differential equations, for example. But in our case, really, there are, um, these individual based models in which you have fairly, um, fairly simple and not too computationally intensive simulations that implement your hypotheses as equations or sets of rules that um, each of these simulated cells follow. And if you want to make a start on these kind of things, you can even just um, 
go to our most recent paper and download the code, which I think is on GitHub. Oh, cool. I, I didn't see the code. Uh, so, um, yeah, if you send me the link, I'll include it in the show notes. Um, and this model that you used, I believe it was borrowed from this like bird models, right? Um, where, yeah, so maybe you could explain in, in more detail the model and like the interactions that you include there. Yeah. So in the, in this most recent, um, uh, article in, in cell systems, I really tried to, um, I guess I, 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 I practice the opposite of what I just preached in that I try to pick a very generic model. And the point of that was to show that, um, this cautionary tale we were telling about, um, the heterogeneity you might measure potentially not being real. I wanted to that be not specific to the uh, to the particular model details that you could, uh, of course, argue with. So f- for this, I really tried to have a fairly general m- model of um, a group of cells moving together. So we stuck to what's called a self-propelled particle model, and that's just uh, saying that each each particle or each each um, cell in the simulation uh, moves out of its own action. And these, uh, you know, there's a long history of these models in at least phenomenologically describing. Uh, bird flocks or, uh, or insect swarms or fish schools. But they've, you know, even, uh, even sort of 15 years ago been adapted to be a bit more realistic for, um, cell migration. And there's really just very few ingredients in this model. And essentially what, um, what is important is that at, you know, I, I told you that each cell moves out of its own action. And the interactions with other cells come in the form that the direction of a cell at a given time point is given by a combination of three different terms. And these three different terms are, first of all, some alignment with other cells. So uh, this would be cells nearby uh, move in a certain direction, and therefore you will tend to move in a similar direction in our case. Then secondly, there's some um, intercellular forces, so some attraction or repulsion. So in addition to um, aligning, you might want to stay close to other cells because you might have some adhesive forces, but at the same time, you don't want to be um, too close because there should, you know, there's, there's some um, volume exclusion and if cells become too switched together, there's, there might be a repulsive force. And then thirdly, the last, the last term influencing the direction of movement would be noise. And that could be, uh, just to implement some, uh, uh intrinsic, uh, variability in the cell's actions. Or, um, it can also be, as it was in our case, to, um, to represent the fact that the interaction with other cells is, is noisy. So if there's some sensing involved of, um, you know, sensing the, the, the position or uh, movement or, or chemical signals of other cells, there'll be some noise associated with that. And we've represented that again, just very generically as, um, a noise term on the, um, on the direction of movement. And, um, the, the, these, these rules, by the way, I should say, you know, really date back, uh, in, in, in the conceptual nature to, um, to things like the Boyd model, which, um, I forget when they're from, from the seventies or eighties even, um, which were used to describe, uh, just to just do graphically realistic simulations of, of, of bird flocks. Um, and, uh, of course we, we have, you know, working with much later iterations of these models that are more appropriate for cell migration. But, um, really at the end of the day, it's just that, that the interactions are alignment, attraction, repulsion and noise. Mm-hmm. And so then you ran the simulations with, with this model, and uh, what did you find? Yeah, so first what we found is that just by varying two of these um, interaction parameters, you really get a great um, range of morphologies of cell migration. So this, this was to, to make the case that this is really a suitable model to describe a range of settings that you might see in collective cell migration. So we found, for example, if the noise is relatively strong compared to the other 
two interaction terms, you just get sort of these disordered clusters that more or less look like they're diffusing around. Whereas if you have high interstellar forces, you get these static um, clusters where cells stay in the same position relative to their neighbors. And that is maybe a bit more like um, uh, solid tissue. And if you had um, very low attraction repulsion, you've got these disordered um, groups that sort of break apart because they don't um, they don't stick together sufficiently and uh, move in different directions. And then, of course, most interestingly, uh, at intermediate values of alignment and attraction repulsion, you've got these moving um, moving clusters or streaming uh, groups of cells that um, really look like a you know like a little uh, a swarm or like a little uh, crawling uh, colony. And then, then we went on to look at this range of different um, simulations and do the analysis of heterogeneity in these different in these different settings. And what we found there is that it's fairly it's fairly easy to get non-zero heterogeneity in these simulations. Which you know should uh, I should remind you in these simulations we explicitly set that each cell is identical, and all the variability that comes in there is just to random initial conditions and intrinsic noise that is causing some chance correlations between cells. So you could easily find that certain settings of the simulated cells look like they're more or less heterogeneous than than others. And uh, even systematically systematically so that with certain parameters such as the the coupling between cells, their attraction repulsion, when this was stronger, it consistently looked like this measurement of heterogeneity was uh, bigger, even though, as I said, every cell in this first set of simulations was uh, exactly identical. Right. And this is a bit confusing to me because I think here you're using maybe a different definition of heterogeneity that you gave in the beginning, right? And like when you say you measure heterogeneity, if we assume that heterogeneity is something inherent to the cells, Right, you you can just assume that they're heterogeneous or or homogeneous, and then ask whether that heterogeneity affects the the results. Or yeah, maybe I'm misunderstanding this. Right. So um, what what we tried to do in in this article was to say if you uh, measure heterogeneity based on cell tracking data, whether you can reliably measure it. Um, or whether you can get measurements such as you would find, for example, in the literature, uh, based uh, e- even from models of um, homogeneous cell populations. So what we did first is start out with the simulation of homogeneous cell population, then measure the heterogeneity in the cell, in the resulting cell tracks, the simulated cell tracks, using this delay correlation analysis, which I described earlier, you know, which essentially just tells you how often does a cell move uh, first as opposed to uh, later compared to other cells? And that sort of constitutes a population measure of heterogeneity. It gives you a distribution of delay times between cells. And the wider this distribution is, the more you would say some cells are moving first and some cells are moving last. Right? This is exactly what, what people have done in, in, in birds and in, in also in um mammalian cell cohorts uh, so far. And what we said at first is that you can get these situations that look like someone moving first uh, just based on um, homogeneous populations of cells uh, in, and limited, um, you know, limited observation times as you would find biologically. Then you can, you can, as you said, you can do another thing, which is to assume heterogeneity and then ask, how does this affect the migration, the collective migration? And here again, you know, you have to consider how you would, how you would measure this effect. And you know, in, in this most recent study, we repeated the same analysis, but now on a group of uh, cells where we, in the simulation, explicitly put in a subset of cells that behave differently by having a preferred direction. So this would be the example of, you know, a few cells following directional signals and um, the rest of the cells just interacting with with the group. And then again, you can 
do this delay correlation analysis, which, you know, like, which uh, I'll remind you is just one uh, possible form of heterogeneity in the migration that you can measure. And we found that in the populations with intrinsic, uh, with implicit heterogeneity uh, built in, in those simulations, you know, you, you still get similar amounts of heterogeneity measured. The, um, the systematic biases are different. So if you vary the parameters, that will change the heterogeneity in different ways. Uh, but importantly, um, in, you know, this is connecting back to the experiment. If you look at experimental data, um, that is out there, you could equally well describe this using models of homogeneous cell populations and models of, um, heterogeneous cell populations. You would just have different resulting, uh, parameters in your model, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you draw attention to, like the measurements being done over a short period of time. So what happens in your model, in your simulation, if you observe them over a longer period? Does this uh, leader-follower pattern, does it uh, break down? So you're right that um, obviously I could observe, I could run my simulations for much um, longer, and in, indeed we've, we've run them for longer than restricted analysis to um, a subset of these. Um, simulation times. If you had an infinite amount of simulation time, um, and if, you know, the system is suitably stochastic, you would expect, uh, over long times, these different, these correlations, uh, just to average out. So if some simulated cells move first, um, they should move, uh, last, uh, just as often, uh, later on in the simulation, for example. So yes, you would expect that with infinite observation times, these measures of, um, heterogeneity, uh, and the delay correlation analysis would eventually dwindle down. And so you could even try to then, you know, um, use models such as this to design your experiments and design your experimental observation times to see, you know, how long would I really have to, how many data points in my cell tracking would I have to take to reliably be able to distinguish between, you know, a homogenous um, behavior, migratory behavior of, of these cells or some intrinsic heterogeneity. Right. So are you saying that, like, the theory predicts that, but in your simulation you didn't, run them even though you ran them for a long time you didn't run them enough to to um you know observe that so so what we did is to use our simulations in a way that would be representative of the experiments that have been done so there would have been fairly little point in showing you um, a simulation of homogenous cells and then showing that, you know, with infinite simulation times, they I can indeed show that they are homogenous. The point we were trying to make was much more to say, if you have, you know, um, as many or even, even you know, uh, quite a few more um, data as you would do in typical cell tracking experiments, then that is uh, not necessarily enough to distinguish uh, between the heterogeneity being real or artifactual. But of course, that again, that that depends on the model. Right, but I think the point would be exactly what you said to see whether, like, it, during a realistic time, maybe a bit longer than was done in real experiments, right? But there's a difference uh, between, I don't know what the typical time scale is, but let's say we observe them during one minute. And like, there's a difference between saying, oh, if we only observe them for like 10 more minutes, we would see the pattern reverse. Or if we would observe them for like another hundred years, we would see the pattern reverse. Yes, you, you make a you make an excellent point, uh, and I send you, I send what you were trying to to ask better now. So I'd have to check my numbers, but we probably had uh, an order of magnitude more um, data points in our uh, in our uh, analysis of the simulated cell track cell tracks compared to uh, what has been done in the literature on um, on cell tracking. And of course, uh, in the original example that I mentioned, 
where similar analysis have been done to flocks of birds, that, that that's a different story because there you have uh, higher um, temporal uh, resolution and longer observational time. So I don't know how many data points they would have had there. So I guess what we're saying is even if you have um, an order of magnitude more data points, that may not be uh, that may not be enough. Now that depends both on your observational time and your sampling frequency. And I also should also stress that it doesn't necessarily doom any attempts to measure heterogeneity in cell tracking because it, it would depend, again, on your, your underlying model. But in this generic framework that uh, we've adopted here to be suitable for a wide range of applications, uh, it was the case that even with you know, an order of magnitude longer observation times, you can still see uh, signatures or semblance of heterogeneity, as we called it in our title, in these simulated cell tracks. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, you said that uh, a lot of researchers now approaching this uh, cell migration problem from the computational perspective. So what other interesting models uh, have been proposed? And maybe let's just restrict this to discrete models, not not continuous models, but what are some alternative models to, to this one? Sure. So I guess there's no strict um, alternatives here in the sense of, you know, we didn't have a particular um, application uh, in in mind. So, you know, uh, if you had an issue with the model, then it would be more with the, I guess, functional form of the application. Uh, uh, equations, for example, but really the the debate needs to be ha- be had over um, the particular uh, applications. So maybe if I just illustrate what kind of different models people have for different biological settings, there are, for example, models that include a much more detail um, at the subcellular scale in terms of, for example, the shape of the cells. So there's, there's um, models that um, through a variety of formalisms, uh, you know, might even simulate the protrusions of um, cells and how that affects the interaction. Or there might be a lot more realistic mechanics in some of these models. So, um, for example, in models of uh, epithelia, so sort of more two-dimensional tissues where every cell is densely packed and connected to other cells, you uh, could represent sort of cells as... Um, um, as uh, little polygons with vertices, and then these vertices interact with each other with certain forces, and that would be a, a vertex model that would be appropriate for certain um, certain applications, but not but not others, for example. So really, it depends on the dimensionality of your biological setting and the topology of uh, your cell neighborhoods and the kind of interactions you're considering. Another important breed of models are the so-called hybrid models, where you combine these sort of discrete modeling of uh, different cells that uh, move with um, continuous representations of chemical signals that these cells might produce or interact with. Um, and that, that's something we've done in, in, in our work in the past as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, these models, I, I assume they can be made both homogeneous or heterogeneous, depending on how you parameterize each individual cell, right? That's right. In the paper, you proposed this model uh, that you described earlier as a null model for the other model, which is the heterogeneity model. But this heterogeneity model uh, has it ever been formalized? No. So we we do this we do this in our in our paper. So the heterogeneity model uh, in our case uh, would be the same model but parameterized so that a subset of the cells in the group have uh, different interactions or, uh, you know, as I said, have a preferred um, direction of movement to represent the fact that they might be following some chemical signals. And we do this in in our paper to investigate, uh, you know, how does this affect the measurements of heterogeneity? Can we describe experimental data just as well? Right, right, right. That that makes perfect sense. What, What I was saying is for every model, so for your model, right, you can add heterogeneity 
back there, right? And for, I presume, every other model, you can make them homogeneous or heterogeneous. But I, I got a sense from your paper that you were proposing your model as like sort of a generic non-model against which it makes sense to check the the data and, and other models. Like, But what, what you're actually right, saying is for whatever model you're considering, you should also derive the null version of this model where everything is homogeneous and see whether it still holds. Yes, I guess I guess that's uh, that's what we're saying is to say, um, you know, uh, for your biological application, choose an appropriate model which might be similar to what we've done or might be quite different. You know, if you're, for example, studying epithelia, you might choose a different model. And then if if you're trying to characterize or measure heterogeneity, then compare it to the homogeneous model, right? And if you see if you still see more heterogeneity in your data than you'd expect from your model representing the hypothesis, the null hypothesis that every cell uh, is identical, you know, bar some intrinsic noise, then uh, then that can guide you towards refining your hypothesis to say, okay, I think there is heterogeneity, and then we can go back to a model, build it in, and again, compare what we see uh, in our measurements uh, compared to um, compared to the now modified model. And thus, you, you get into the cycle of, uh, you know, use the model to predict, uh, test it experimentally, and then refine the model, uh, which is which is sort of a common framework in quantitative biology or, or mathematical biology to do, do this um, iteratively many times. Right, right. That, that makes sense. So, in your model, the salient feature of your model is that the cells they sort of align their velocities in maybe not not in the common direction, but like in the direction of their neighbors. And is there a plausible like physical or chemical mechanism by which this can happen? Yeah, so that that's a valid criticism. You might say that this. Um, interaction term that aligns the cell's movement direction might be, uh, you know, might be considered unrealistic. Um, we, we think it's okay because other people who've modeled the cell movement in more detail with uh, sort of lamellipodia protrusions, these are just sort of uh, extensions of the cell membrane uh, in front of cells, um, have shown that sort of, um, you know, some short-range adhesive forces between cells uh, that have, you know, a non-uniform shape can essentially be equivalent to an alignment term just based on the fact that when, when cells maybe collide and, and have a certain shape and adhesion, the outcome can be uh, such that, that they're effectively aligning their velocities. Another mechanism you could think of is to have some, uh, some uh, chemical uh, signals that these cells um, secrete, for example. Um, and that uh, guides other cells to uh, to uh, move towards them, and that would be more of an uh, more of an sort of uh, attractive uh, guidance mechanism between cells. Yeah, but that only covers attraction, right? Because this cell cannot like directly observe the the velocity of another cell. So you can you can imagine a situation where, for example, I'm moving towards you, but at the same time you're moving in in an orthogonal direction but i cannot sense that until i uh, come sufficiently close to you right so yeah i i struggle to think of an example where you could sense that with the chemical signals i described uh, you're right there might be uh, you know effects due to um if you also actively degrade these um, signals by internalizing them but th- there's other ways you could uh Presumably, uh, uh, sense this biologically, and I'm happy to be corrected by any listeners that have more biological expertise. But you could either, uh, you know, sense um, uh, sense traction, for example, in the um, extracellular matrix or whatever medium you're you're moving through. You could even have modifications uh, in the environment that um, uh, cause you to follow the path of. Uh, other cells, for example, um, and even you know, even in um, some of the neural crest uh, studies that uh, our collaborators from the Kalisa lab have done, you can see cells contacting each other, contacting each other with phallopodia, and then 
migrating uh in uh, in parallel afterwards as opposed to uh as opposed to towards each other so there could be you know there could be an effective alignment also through um active movement and keeping your distance to a neighbor that can have an aligning effect if you come in uh towards uh, another cell structure at an angle and then you keep certain distance to it that will align you towards it as well mm-hmm. interesting okay but you know uh, you're right to say that if it's if it's unrealistic in your particular biological application then you know you need to modify your model and and uh, that might change what you expect to see mm-hmm. uh, but then we also have to explain not just why like cells move together or in a common direction but how they arrive at the right place right and uh I think just a homogeneous model without any external signals cannot really explain that, right? So you you still need some maybe global chemotaxis or something. Yes, you're completely right. You, uh, if the question you're trying to answer is how cells get to the place that they uh, move towards, then you need either some sort of confinement to keep the cells uh, moving into a certain direction. Uh, or you need some gradients of uh, chemical signals that you know impart a direction, a preferred direction on the movement of the cells. Or there's actually a third possibility, which um, is another thing we've we've studied in the case of the neural crest, which is to have a so-called um, cell-induced or self-generated um, gradient, which is to say that even if you have a uniform distribution of um, chemicals if you have the cells degrade these chemicals by uh, either producing other chemicals that um, degrade your guidance molecules or by internalizing the guidance molecules when you sense them therefore acting like a sponge that soaks up um, these guidance molecules then you locally deplete the concentration of these guidance molecules and that creates a gradient uh, around you and then if if you're in a if you're in a group that uh, imparts a direction to uh, essentially move the group uh, forwards or, or spread out at least um, and there's some exciting work in in many different biological systems that uh, shows that that may be the case in a variety of settings in your paper you talk about like you compare two ways to define models one is this rigorous mathematical way and the other is sort of verbal, vague uh, models. And you say that we, sh- uh, we should strive to bring verbal models into the mathematical land. Uh, but I'm curious, like now that you have, let's say, this model, can you sort of do the reverse? Can you make a verbal picture of this mathematical phenomenon? For, for example, there are different patterns in which cells can move depending on the the parameters and uh, can you explain how they emerge yeah that's a good that's a good challenge we should always pose ourselves to communicate communicate our results with any sort of truly collective effects or emergent phenomena that's always going to be difficult because almost but almost by definition it's hard to hard to reason why something happens when a hundred or more things uh, interact in a certain way um, from from just the description of how the individuals behave. You can do it at a course level where you can say, you know, um, in this case, when the attraction between cells is high, but the alignment of the directions is low, that'll give you some sort of uh, statically ordered cluster, whereas if you have um, some intermediate attraction but very high alignment between cells, that will give you sort of you know a stream of cells all moving uh, in the same direction, but with only sort of loose positional order uh, between them, for example. And just to touch back on what you said, the the reason why we say the converse is true to it's important to bring the verbal models in the in the mathematical land, as you said it. That's of course because the the mathematics will will tie you to the logic and will enable you to to make predictions from your hypotheses when when it becomes difficult to do so uh, 
verbally, right? Because you might you might say, okay, so this cell does this, and then the neighboring cell moves in such a way, and then in turn the cells around it will move in uh, yet another way, and by the time you get to you know dozens of cells over many time step, it just becomes infeasible. Right, right, and. Yeah, I recommend all the listeners to check out your papers because there are uh, many great, great points such as this one in there. I uh, really enjoyed uh, reading them. Thanks. Before we part here, I wanted to talk to you about multidisciplinarity. I imagine there can be two ways to have multidisciplinary research. One is for people like you who are well familiar with both biology and physics and mathematics to just carry it out. And the other way is to join multidisciplinary team where we have a physicist and mathematician and a programmer and a biologist. So which one of these two do you prefer or advocate or? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, how to, how to do multidisciplinary work and whether to be, you know, an expert in a team of experts or whether to be a jack of all trades. Um, that's difficult, um, because, you know, if, if, if you bring something to the table uh, with an expertise in programming or physics or a particular biological experimental setup, that can often be more, um, efficient because, you know, um, you don't have to learn everything from scratch. On the other hand, it will take a lot of communication time between the different experts to make sure they're talking about the same thing and talking at the at, at the same level. On the other hand, being someone who does both, for example, the experiments and the simulations uh, is very attractive because you will really understand every part of it um, as well as you as well as you can. But it may slow down your progress. One of the reasons why I've opted to be a computational and theoretical biologist working closely with experimentalists is because I like the variety of different applications. And I got the impression that when you, whenever I tried doing experiments, which, which I've done a bunch of times, it seems like you invest much more heavily in a particular experimental system, at least in, in developmental biology, which I mostly looked at, um, in my PhD. You know, you might become an expert in doing uh, experiments in zebrafish or xenopus or chick embryos or cell cultures. And you may be able to do two of these or, you know, change when you go from PG to postdoc or from postdoc to, to PI, but it seemed much more of a commitment. And I guess, I guess I was feeling <laughs> non-committal, but if you find something that truly fascinates you and you're happy to, you know, stick with that for a long time, then I would recommend to, to go for it and, and, and do both experiments and theory if you can. Yeah, and I was thinking there's probably a third way, which is maybe the most efficient, is when you have the specialists, but each specialist, like if it's a biologist, but she also knows a bit of programming and like understands how to talk to programmers. And if it's a programmer, then uh, he understands uh, a bit of biology and understands how to talk to biologists. Yes, yes, that's a good point. Uh, and that's probably closer to what I try to do. So when I work with biologists, I try to, you know, always at least observe the experiment once or, or maybe even do it if they let me to, to know what's involved to make sure I understand how difficult it is and, and, and what the caveats are. And at the same time, it's, it's very useful for the biologists to, uh, to know enough of the mathematics and the programming so that they can understand what they're being told and, and also critically assess whether it makes sense to them. Trust is good, but understanding is even better. That's, that's yeah. the and uh, do you have any advice for maybe a mathematician or a physicist who's listening to this and who would like to get into multidisciplinary research or, or biology in particular? That's a good question. Where do they start? It depends a bit on the career stage. If you're looking to do say, a PhD, I would look for some interdisciplinary training programs where maybe you can do, uh, you can learn a bit more biology if you come from the uh, theoretical side, or you can learn a bit more mathematical computational skills if you come from the biology side. 
if you're already a trained uh, scientist in the sense that you've, you've done your PhD or maybe a, a, a postdoc and want to move into that, you just got to, you know, start talking to biologists, maybe go to some, go to some of their meetings um, uh, to find out what both what fascinates you, but also where you think you can make a difference with with your skills. You know, you might you might see them talking about a problem that you think you can solve using your, you know, statistical analysis or your simulation or, or your your mathematical techniques. So really, it's yeah, it's about communication and uh, finding a problem that you can really sink your teeth into. Excellent. Well, Linus, thanks a lot for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was very interesting. Thank you very much for having me.